Hello and welcome. I'm Carol Cram, host of the Art and Fiction Podcast. This episode is called Vinyl Rules, Digital Drools, and features my interview with Andrew Cartmill, author of the hilarious Vinyl Detective series. Andrew Cartmill is a novelist, playwright, and screenwriter. His work for television includes Midsummer Murders and Torchwood, and a stint as script editor on the legendary Doctor Who series. He has also written plays for the London Fringe, toured as a stand-up comedian, and is currently co-writing with Ben Aronovich a series of comics based on the best-selling Rivers of London books. All five novels in Andrew's Vinyl Detective series are featured in the music category on Art in Fiction, including Written in Dead Wax, The Runout Groove, Victory Disc, Flip Back, and Low Action, due out in August 2020. Welcome to the Art in Fiction podcast, Andrew. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited to chat with you today. I have to say I'm becoming a bit of a fangirl of your books, the Vinyl Detective series. They just make me laugh out loud. Can you give us a little summary of the Vinyl Detective series? Like, who is he and what does he do? Ah, well, this all came about because I've always wanted to write and I've always wanted to write books. But I did a long detour through working in television. But I came back to the point where I wanted to write novels. And as it happened, a very good friend of mine and fellow TV writer had just written what became a very successful best-selling series of novels. His name's Ben Aronovich. The series is called Rivers of London. And I said, OK, Ben, what's the trick? Because I'd, I'd written some novels before, but none of them had really worked. And he said, the trick is to write about what you genuinely love, like not, not to try and second guess the marketplace or, you know, invent the perfect bestseller, but actually to genuinely come clean and write about what you really adore. And for me, that's like a digging in crates, looking for old records, you know, hunting down bits of vinyl, playing them on a very good system, record collecting and listening to music. And I thought, wow, that's not immediately a recipe for a bestseller. But I also love crime fiction. So I thought, oh, the vinyl detective. And at that time, when I first set out on this project, I Googled the vinyl detective and nobody was using that phrase. Over the years, as the book slowly came towards publication, that phrase began to pop up in, in other places uh, where people had also thought that it was a cool thing and it had independently arrived at it. But I was there first. I want you to know that, Carol. There first. Well, I'm, I'm glad you were. Isn't that wonderful, though? Can you imagine if you got the idea and then you went and there were like six of them? There are now. <laughs> but there wasn't then, so you, you've cornered it. <laughs> Virgin territory. So I sat down and started writing these crime novels and... Thank heavens, they, there now seems to be a growing readership for them. Well, no wonder, uh, because they, they are so compelling. And I think what sets them apart from a lot of the genre is the humor. And, and also, I think the fact that it's unusual, you know, the vinyl detective and, and all the, the music references. I gather you're a huge uh, jazz fan. I am a huge jazz fan, but not, as you've probably begun to discover, each book is about a different genre of music. Yes. Don't worry, if you're not a huge jazz fan, just wait a minute, there'll be a book about something other than jazz coming along. Can you actually summarize what each of the books, the five books are about in terms of their genre? Yeah, so the first one is jazz. Yes. The second book is psychedelic rock music of the 60s. If you think Pink Floyd, you would you would have uh, grasped my starting point. The uh, third book, was swing music, which is arguably jazz as well. It's a big band swing. And the fourth book is 
psychedelic folk music of the 60s, if you were to think um, the incredible string band and the like. And the new book, which is should have been out by now, but because of certain shenanigans uh, across the globe, it's been pushed back till August. That is about punk rock, which is a genre I think you may have heard. Of. Oh, yes. Yeah, we'll talk about that in, in a little while. How about classical music? Have you got a classical music in the works? I don't have one uh, on the stocks ready to go, but during the, the first novel, there, there's a a little bit about classical music in that. I'm obviously not a, an expert. It's such a huge field, but I, I do love certain little areas of it. And also, because I'm not just a music lover, I'm also an audiophile. God help. God help us both. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in like the finest pressings and the finest recordings. In the world of classical music, that is every bit as uh, fanatically pursued as it is in the world of rock or jazz music. Oh, I can imagine. That leads me to a question. One thing I love about your novels is how the vinyl detective himself pokes fun at pretentious people, like my favorite, Stinky Stanmer. (laughs) (laughs) He's great. He just sort of pops in and out, doesn't he? Yes. And also Eric Makeloud, which, well, I'll let you describe Eric Makeloud. Well, it's it's good that you mentioned Eric because he's in the new book. Yes, I saw that, yeah. Eric is a narcissistic, wealthy uh, rock guitarist, sort of of the, um, I suppose, the Keith Richards school, although I don't think that he's quite as uh, louche as Keith, who's a fantastic guitarist, but certainly, uh, you know, that hedonistic 60s rock guitarist who somehow managed to survive. Some of them did. And that's, that's Eric Maycloud. Stinky, who you mentioned, is sort of our hero's nemesis. Mm-hmm. And people really hate Stinky and they, they often uh, get in touch on social media asking me if I could kill him off. Oh, no. Well, I, exactly. Because I say to them, it would be like, just on a tangent here, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. And if you remember, I don't know if you, you are, but there was a character in Game of Thrones called Joffrey who you just hated. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I've seen it. Yeah. And but then when he was killed, you kind of missed him. And it wasn't the same when he was gone. Oh, you have to have a villain. Yes. Yeah, we, we need our monsters. Stinky isn't really the villain because each book brings on a new, uh, a new crime and a new mystery and a new killer. And so Stinky's never the big bad, but he's He's a big nuisance along the way, and he's terribly useful in his way. I think the readers love to hate him, and I just kind of love him because I just sit down and think, I'm going to write a stinky stammer scene. You don't need more than one or two in a book. And he just comes on, he does his thing because he's so preening and self-regarding and so evil, basically, uh, and selfish and all the other bad things and shallow. But he's so wonderful to write about and such fun. Oh, he is. Yeah, deep down he's shallow. I think he's actually one of my fairy favorites. <laughs> Every time a stinky stinky comes in, I went, oh boy. So you actually have several recurring characters. Of course, that's just backing up for a minute. The thing about writing a series is that you have a small group of characters that goes into every single book. Does that make it easier in a way to write? Absolutely. And Carol, when I sat down to write these books, I thought if people actually embrace these and come to love them and make the books, the series a success, it'll not be because every book has a satisfying mystery and lots of thrills and suspense. They need that too. But what is really brings people back again and again are the regular characters and if they fall in love with them because they'll be thinking oh i wonder what my friends are up to by friends meaning these imaginary people in these books but i knew that because i'm like that and i have my own favorite series and you do fall in love with these characters so i thought if i could pull that off that is 
going to be the appeal that gives these books longevity. And actually, that's a that's really good advice for new authors if they're sort of thinking about you know which way to go forward. It's true. The reason I love your books isn't because of the mysteries, which are intriguing. But you know, half the time I I won't necessarily remember that. But I'll always think about Nevada, the vinyl detective's girlfriend, Tinkler, and Cleanhead, and of course the cats. So the cats play integral roles in the novel. I presume you're a cat lover. Well, here's the thing, Carol. Um, I mentioned my friend Ben, who was sort of mentoring me in a sense, giving me advice when I started writing these books. And I based the hero very closely on myself, partly because it was low-hanging fruit and easy to do. But that character is very like me. I mean, obviously, he shares my obsession. So I also gave him the same hi-fi audiophile sound system that I own. He lives in a similar place to me. He had all these similarities, certain differences, though he's a he's a coffee snob and I don't drink coffee because it jangles my nerves too much. But basically he was very, very closely based on me, except I didn't put the cats in the book. And Ben said, aren't you going to put the cats in? And I said, no, you know, I think we have to draw the line somewhere. He said, no, you must include the cats. So I followed his advice. And I'm so glad I did because people love the cats. They they really do. And they respond to that. And I don't want to give your listeners the impression that these are, I like those mysteries, which are all about cat. There's several successful and good series of mysteries which the cats are pretty central. This is not those. But what it is, is the hero owns a couple of cats who put in an appearance a few times in every book, just briefly. But people love those appearances and they adore the cats. And and the thing is, this is all part of bringing a world to life. And that is what is sort of magic for the reader, because once you bring that world to life and, and you have our hero and you have Nevada and you have the cats, once that world is real, then if you put your characters in jeopardy or you send them on a mission, the reader is totally invested and is totally with them in the moment. And it's just part of the binding of the spell, which you want to do to completely uh, entrance your readers. Well, I think that's something that you really do well with these books is this, these are whole people. The vinyl detective, because of the cats and, and his relationship with Nevada and the wine drinking, and well, there's so many different things and where he lives. And <laughs> he's he's a real person. He's not like a detective. He's just this guy <laughs> that, that loves records and is always seeming to get himself into trouble. So he's like every man. But the vinyl detective is never named. Will he ever have a name? Um, the answer to that, Carol, is if there's ever a TV show or a movie, I'm a practical guy. I will give him a name for that because you'll need one to stick on the script and also for the publicity and everything. Because I have a very good model for this. What actually happened was I didn't sit down with the intention of creating a, a nameless character, a man with no name, a detective with no name. But because I was writing in the first person, I didn't need a name right away because everything is from his point of view, right? So it's all me, this and me, that. When you're thinking in somebody's head, they tend not to think in terms of themselves in the third person or by name. So it was perfectly natural for him not to have a name. And I sort of at a certain point when I was quite deeply into writing the novel, I I realized I hadn't given him a name and it didn't matter. And I thought, well, let's go for this because it sort of adds an extra kind of cool little layer of mystery to it. Also, crucially, I was aware that one could do this because there was some very honorable antecedents. There's uh, the great crime novelist, Dashiell Hammett, who's one of my heroes. He had a character called the Continental Op, op meaning operative, in other words, detective. He worked for the Continental Detective Agency and we never learned his name. And also there's a terrific spy novelist called Len Date, yes. who in the early 60s wrote a series of very successful spy novels, starting with The Ipcrest File. There was Funeral in Berlin, uh, Horse Underwater, Billion Dollar Brain. And these are terrific books. And again, they're a first-person narration by a sardonic narrator 
who's never named. He was known as the nameless operative. But here's the thing. When they made the movie of the Impress File, which was a pretty darn good movie, uh, they thought he's got to have a name. So they called him Harry Palmer, which is a very, very mundane, down-to-earth name because that was the, the shtick of, of this spy that in the world of James Bonds, he was the sort of ordinary man, the everyman. Well, I thought it was brilliant because I actually didn't realize he didn't have a name until I started writing a review of Flip Back, your fourth novel, and I was going to reference the character, and then I had to go back through the book going, oh, wait a minute, he doesn't even have a name, which was brilliant because, I, as I said, I never really noticed until I needed a name. That's so cool. I think that a lot of people have sat down to write reviews have suddenly discovered that, which is very gratifying for me because it's like a little bonus. It's like a little Easter egg. Yeah, it, it is totally like an Easter egg. It's wonderful. So you have said that you will do a reading for us, which I'm very excited to hear. I actually found a piece that I feel will work. Okay. Well, I'll let you set it up. So go for it. Right. So this is from the new vinyl detective novel, Low Action, which will be published in August. It's the fifth vinyl detective novel. So Low Action, chapter one, new girlfriend. I'd like you to meet my new girlfriend, said Eric. Someone's trying to kill her. He offered this remark in such a casual, offhand, everyday manner that I had to repress the urge to reply, that's nice. Eric Maycloud, less pretentiously Eric McLeod, was a former rock star, comfortably wealthy, and, if you stretched a point, our neighbor. I never got along very well with him. Eric was self-regarding and superior, to commence a long list. But one muffled gray afternoon in a recent winter, we'd undergone a very horrible near-death experience together. And I suppose that had bonded us perhaps even made us friends. At least, friends to the extent that he'd generally now make eye contact when he spoke to me, which is what he was doing right now as he loomed in my doorway, emanating a cloud of expensive aftershave. I said, come in, Eric. Before I shut the door behind him, I looked around outside to make sure the new girlfriend, whose life was putatively in danger, wasn't actually standing there waiting to shake hands. Eric didn't bother with shaking hands. He was content to slap me on the shoulder in what would have been a comradely fashion if it hadn't been so heavy-handedly hard. As I led him into our sitting room, where our cats looked up at our guest and regarded him with suspicion, as well they might. For a start, Eric was wearing a cap that looked like it had been looted off a dead Confederate soldier, along with an elaborately fringed and brightly beaded buckskin jacket that might have been looted off the Comanche brave who'd just killed the Confederate. Plus, of course, very skinny black jeans and very expensive black sneakers. Turk took one look at this apparition, then sensibly darted out the cat flap, just as Nevada came hurrying in from the kitchen. Did I hear that correctly, she said. She looked at Eric with shock in her mesmerizing big blue eyes. Did you actually say? Yes, dear, said Eric, gazing at her fondly. Eric had always liked Nevada. Who wouldn't? You've got a girlfriend? He also said someone was trying to kill her. One thing at a time, one earth-shattering revelation at a time. You mean a real seeing her on a regular basis, girlfriend? Not one of your usual... Nevada waved her hand in the air in a manner which Eric and I both understood to mean inappropriately nubile and fleeting, celebrately besotted one-night stands. Yeah, going steady. We've been seeing each other for a few months now. My God, who is this girlfriend? She's called Helene. Lovely name, said Nevada. It means light. Does it, said Eric? All I know is that she plays a mean guitar. Ah, so she's a musician too, Nevada looked at me. 
the extraordinary longevity of their relationship begins to make sense. Eric chuckled, yeah, well, it's nice to be able to connect on a musical level, you know, as well as everything else. Very good guitarist she is, plays big chunky phrases, reminds me a bit of Blood Ulmer. Well, I'm delighted for you, said Nevada. She took my hand. We're both delighted for you. Now, what's all this business about someone trying to kill her? It's so great. I I just enjoy it so much. Um, good old Eric, yes. And then, of course, we find out that Helene is, what, what is her name, her, her stage name? Her name is Helene Hilditch. That's her real name. And her stage name as a, a punk rocker was Howling Hellbitch. <laughs> oh, gosh, it totally took me back to... 1977. You had the, the manuscript, right. Gotcha. That's right. And it's, it's wonderful. I totally enjoyed it. And I'm dating myself, but I totally remember when punk rock started because I was at university in England in 1977. I went to Reading. Oh my God. Well, you're right at the epicenter. We were, but I knew nothing about it. We, we just, we didn't run in those crowds. We, we were, I don't know, we fancied ourselves as intellectuals, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but I certainly remember when punk rock came out. So I got a huge kick out of, you're talking about the late 70s and that whole period and how they named each other and the girls' schools, because I went to university with girls that went to those schools. So anyway, it's great for people who, well, you know, your novels are great for anybody, but if you remember punk rock, you'll really enjoy this one. That's something all the way through your novels that is so much fun is all the references to the different types of music. You just throw things in every so often and sometimes I get them, thanks to my husband who knows so much about jazz. Sometimes I don't, but it doesn't matter because I'm always learning new things. So that must be a lot of fun for you. Well, and also that's what makes the vinyl detective work as a, a detective in a field which is not short of detective stories. The thing is, you want to have a detective with a difference. And so you want him to operate in a world that's sort of uniquely his own. And you want the reader to buy into it. And what we love as readers is expertise. And I was talking to somebody the other day about a novel by Neville Shute, now a forgotten novelist, but a huge bestseller in his day. And Neville Shute would do something like he would describe somebody doing a piece of carpentry and and tooling a piece of wood on a lathe. Now, you and I would both probably be very bored with this as an activity in real life. But when it's described, when there's not too much, but just enough detail, and you talk about this guy doing something, in this case, machining a part on a lathe, you, you think, oh, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. And more importantly, you think this writer knows what he's talking about. And I suddenly believe that this character and the world that this character exists in. So, you know, you could have a stamp collecting detective. You could have a detective who's an expert in orchids, uh, Nero Wolf, just to name a name. Uh, yes. There's all these different things, different worlds they could be in, but you need to sort of bring that world to life to convince the reader that they are really existing in that world for the duration of the book. So you need a certain amount of that background detail. You don't so much that it becomes boring, but you need enough to give a flavor of this unique world and to sort of excite the reader and to, again, to draw them in the same way that uh, having regular characters are important, having a consistent world is important. So that's one reason I do that musical detail stuff, but also because it's fun and often funny. Exactly. Very funny. And I think that's really excellent advice. The idea of expertise, of having your main character be an expert in something. And yeah, just sprinkling it through is wonderful. Because I know I love those bits. 
As I said, it's the characters and those bits and, and your whole world that stick with me long past the actual mystery. Thank you so much. So, for instance, my character might have to replace some of the vacuum tubes in one of his monoblock amplifiers. And a lot of description of that would be really boring and a real turnoff, but a little bit you sort of think, oh, this guy's got a special thing going on and he's an expert in that world. And yeah, sit back and tell me a bit more about him because he's suddenly, him and his world have come to life. And you said sprinkle it on. And that is exactly right because it's the special seasoning and it'd be easy to overdo it. It's like sumac or something, right? Yes. You just sprinkle a little bit on and it really adds to the enjoyment of the meal. I think the point is sprinkling because you don't want to have long info dumps for sure. A little bit goes a long way. Time for a short break. If you're an author, you've probably struggled with marketing. We've all been there. Fortunately, you don't have to do everything yourself. Since 2005, AuthorBuzz has been the premier way to reach readers and introduce them to your books. AuthorBuzz is the only way to purchase many promotions, including programs with BookMovement.com, the largest book club site with over 70,000 registered book clubs, and exclusive promotions at Goodreads, Amazon, DearReader.com, and more. Check out AuthorBuzz at www.authorbuzz.com. Mention art and fiction and you'll receive a discount on book marketing services. And now, back to the show. The other piece of advice is, I would write about what you genuinely know already. Yes. But if you don't know anything very exciting, like, you know, if you're not, not say, a medical technician or somebody who works on a, an ocean cruise liner, if you don't have some distinctive background, then you're going to have to do a deep dive into research. And once you do that, then the, the challenge will be avoiding those info dumps because you have all these wonderful nuggets, golden nuggets of research you've done, and you want to use them all. But you'll have to be very guarded about that. You have to be very on the ball about not overdoing it. And in the, the age of the computer, that's much easier because you can go back and, and trim and trim and trim. And you have to make sure you get it right because somebody will find it. <laughs> oh, there's been a couple of mistakes over the years. And the great thing about, again, about the, the world in which we live now is that you can correct the eBooks right away and you can correct the printed books next time they're printed. So what, they just have to correct the master file. So that's a wonderful advantage. The one thing you can't do is correct the audiobooks. We haven't worked out a way of doing that yet. I actually listened to Written in Dead Wax on the audio version. And I, I kept startling my husband because I'd be walking around the house listening to it. And then I'd start laughing out loud. <laughs> he couldn't see the earpiece. And he's going, what's wrong with her now? Well, I'm so pleased that, that you do find them funny. And we, you mentioned the humor in the books. I've got to tell you, when I first delivered these books to my agent, and I've now got a different agent for reasons which may become clear. He said, but they're funny. You know, like, that's a problem. You know, how, can we get rid of the funniness? Oh, gosh, no. And uh, my point was like, no, but because this wasn't unique amongst books. There, there were, uh, you know, there was the Charles Paris Mysteries or the Agatha Raisin books. There, there are humorous, cozy crime novels. I don't want people to get the impression that they're comic novels. They're, they're hard-hitting mystery thrillers which have humor in them because that contrast is fabulous. And that's something I really enjoy. But to him, he thought everything should be very grim and noir in his defense at the time. 
what was everybody was looking for was Nordic noir, which is very Scandi noir, right? Oh, I know. I've read a few Icelandic ones. Whoa, scary. They, they tend to be very bloody and quite relentless and ruthless. So that was the paradigm, the publishing paradigm at the time. So giving him books, which the guy has a couple of cats, uh, and there's lots of laughs along the way. But the point was, I, I knew that if we could get them into print, they would begin to generate a readership because they're fun to read. They will find a readership of people who don't actually want to read the noirs. Because I have read the odd Scandinavian one, and I find them too gory, actually. I, I don't particularly want a lot of violence. That's why I gravitated towards The Vinyl Detective. Oh, well, that's great. The way I used to describe the Scandinavian, I used to call them Danish disembowelments. Those <laughs> Scandinavian, because there's a lot of that going on, right? However, having said, I just, I must add, so, so it's not to be too much of a hypocrite, that I really love the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo uh, trilogy. Yes, they're very good. By Steve Larson. And uh, also, uh, you said you, at some point, you might be asking about what's next for the Vinyl Detective. Well, I've started work on book six, and it is the Vinyl Detective goes Scandi Noir. Fantastic. Does he like, go to Scandinavia? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And uh, looking for a, a Swedish death metal record. Of course. Because that's the thing. Now, of course, I must give a mileage may vary warning. At the moment, this is the book I'm working on. Because we're under lockdown and the, the current book has been delayed, we haven't actually got a contract in place for the next book. So my publisher doesn't know it's going to be Scandi Noir. So we will see. But this is the book that I want to write. And at the moment, I've begun to write and I'm enjoying it. Oh, fantastic. Well, actually, I had a trip planned to Sweden this summer, but that was cancelled. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It was a beautiful place. And one reason that I'm working on this book now is because I, I did go to Sweden uh, in the fall. And so without knowing it, I did the research because I wasn't planning to write a book. But I came back with my head full of wonderful images and a sense of the place, which is really useful. Yeah, isn't it amazing where you, you get your inspiration? You went to Sweden and suddenly now you want to uh, set a novel there. I'm trying to figure out how I can set a novel in Iceland that isn't noir. Because I visited not very long ago and I absolutely loved it. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is your character descriptions are very, very vivid even just your little ones, like the lady in the corner or whatever, you, they just pop right out. You can actually see these people. So do you watch a lot of people? How do you do that? Well, I have, I've got a bunch of files in a folder, which is specifically dedicated to material that might be useful in future books. Like I've got a dialogue file and a list of na names have a certain magic, as you know, Carol. Yes. Half the battle in creating a character is a good name. So when I come across a name, I just you know, I jot that down. And I, I've also got a file of description. So when I see people, because it's such a drag to have to come up with, to describe the way somebody's dressed from a standing start. So I've got this long file about whenever I see somebody, I think, wow, that's kind of a cool thing that they were, even if it's just a t-shirt with a really amusing slogan I haven't heard before. So I record all those things. But I have to say that I don't often go to that file. Usually in the moment, I do create the character. I do want to bring them to life swiftly and vividly. And one mentor, if I could put it so pretentiously, in this is, is Raymond Chandler. Oh, yes. After Hammett, he's probably the most interesting uh, crime writer of that era. What Chandler used to do is when he was working on his books, he didn't work on paper. He used to have a series of four by six cards and he would type on each of those cards so that, that it, the book would be in these little fragments before he would type it into a full manuscript. And part of the reason for that is on each card, he wanted a little bit of magic, like whether it was a joke or whether it was an interesting description. He wanted to have something special there, something that would appeal to the reader. And if you think about that, 
those are that's such a short chunk of text in the book that if you do that successfully, it's, your book will never be dull, which was his the reason for doing it. And I thought, well, that's really clever. I don't necessarily get a volume of Chandler down off the shelf to read, but I do bear that philosophy in mind when I'm writing. That's very good advice. My favorite line from Chandler is, she came at me in sections. <laughs> You could just see her, right? The femme fatale. Uh, but yeah, that's a very good advice just to be observant and jot things down. Even if you never go to that file, I think the act of doing it sort of attunes you. And then, you know, your subconscious just comes out when you're actually writing. Well, we were talking about advice for would-be writers. And one of the most important things that I ever heard in my life was uh, there's a film director called Louis Bunuel. He's a surrealist filmmaker. Yeah. Yes, of course. He wrote an autobiography called My Last Gasp. And one of the, he just said this throwaway line in it where he said, the imagination is a muscle. You know, the more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. I you see, up to that point, I used to hoard my little idea. I thought, oh, that's a great idea. I'll save that for some special day. And I realized that was going about it in all the wrong way. When you come up with these great ideas, you want to use them. And if you do use them and write uh, these ideas you have, the act of writing is exercising that muscle. It's not like a well that you're going to exhaust. It's the opposite of that. The more you do it, the better you get at it. I, so that I took a completely different approach from that point on. That was a very important and useful piece of advice for me. And actually speaking of, of writing in terms of like, how often do you do it? Do you have a writing routine? I try and get it out of the way early in the day as possible because I want to make sure I do it. <laughs> you know? Yes, that is good advice. I know I like to do it in the morning too. Yeah, in an ideal world. However, if events conspire to mean that I can't sit down until even late in the evening, I will do it then. I think the crucial thing is for anybody who's trying to write, it's just get started. Like I always think, just give the book a little kiss good morning. Like just sit down and write one sentence. If you can't do that, just write one word because that's what's scaring you because it sure is how what's scaring me is getting started. So I just say to myself, let's just write a sentence. And of course that breaks the ice and you get going on it. But to go back to something you asked at the very beginning about whether having this cast of characters, which is getting larger and larger, the basic nucleus of my books is four characters, which is our hero, Nevada, his girlfriend, Tinkler, his wacky friend, sort of the Shakespearean clown, and their friend, Agatha, also known as Cleanhead. So that's the nucleus of the book, plus Stinky, who's sort of the, the baddie. Baddie in the sense that he's not a nice guy. So that's the essential core of the books, plus a couple of cats. But I've got this increasingly large canvas of subsidiary characters like Eric Maycloud, there's Opal, uh, now called Opal. Every time I introduce a new character who doesn't get bumped off, they're likely to come back in the next book. These characters keep recurring from earlier novels, which is great because they're, you've already created them, so you know who they are. So that saves you a bit of work. But also the readers know who they are, and they're quite glad to see them again. And it, again, creates this sense of a, a real world because you think, ah, this is a world populated by a lot of people, and I'm seeing them all crop up again. So I'm really drawn into the spell of it again. And that makes it fun for the reader, but it also makes it easier for the writer. Because here's one tip. If you've got four characters, say, providing their vivid characters, and they're in a scene together, by the time you've described the scene and its effect on those four characters, you've pretty much written the scene. So it helps to have these different characters to help carry the story. Well, and what is interesting about your novels is that you can read them in any order. I started with novel number four, but then I went back to novel one 
And that was a lot of fun because that's the origin story. That's when you actually meet Nevada for the first time and find out how they get together. And because I already knew they were together, it was fun to see how that all happened. So that's interesting that you can read your novels in any order, as far as I can tell, and you get different type of pleasure from going back and seeing how things progress, probably because you like the characters so much. I'm so pleased you said that because that's exactly my philosophy, because people often take the kind of rigid view that you have to start with book one. I advise them just to dip in anywhere, because if you did start with book one, you'd see the growing relationship between the two principal characters and how that came about. What you just said is exactly the way I thought it would be. If somebody gets a later book, then goes back to book one, it has this whole other layer of pleasure because you already know that these two characters are together. And as you say, it's the origin story and all the bit where it, it looks like, you know, that they'll never get together. That had, it's not as though it's spoiled by what you know, it's actually enhanced by what you know. It, it totally is. When I first found out that it was Nevada, mysterious woman that shows up at his door at the beginning of the book went oh Nevada yay (laughs) and then they go on all their ups and downs all through the first book but yeah I know they'll get together and uh, so that's a real feat that you can write a series where you don't have to read them in order and I think that's crucial actually to the success of it because people sometimes do I don't know why I started with number four maybe you like the cover you see the thing is all of the series that I really loved, and I'll name just two, the Travis McGee series by John D. McDonald. If you're a crime fiction lover, please check those out because they're amazing. And then on a completely different tangent, the Aubrey Maturin novels by Patrick O'Brien, which are about seafaring novels of the Napoleonic era. And in both cases, I didn't start with book one. I just started with a book that came to hand and then started discovering the series. And it was it was great because you, you read them randomly. And then if you, like me, you love them so much, you want to read them again, you can read them in order. And it, you're coming at it in two different ways and you're having two different pleasurable experiences. Yes, I, I actually haven't read all five of your novels yet because I'm kind of saving them. <laughs> I can hardly wait to read two and three, but I have a lot of novels to read right now. So I think, okay, no, I, I, I'll read them later when I have more time. High praise because I, I know that's the way I feel. And then if, once you've read them all, you're going to have to wait a year for the next book to come out. I know. That's why I don't want to read them too quickly. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the whole publishing thing. New writers always want to talk about publishing. So uh, how did you get published? I wrote the first final detective novel and I sent it to my agent who I mentioned, my agent at the time, the guy who would eventually say, why is it funny? So I had written this book and it felt that this was a crucial thing in my career, that I'd reached a turning point or a tipping point with this novel. And it was a really important novel for me to have written. And I sent it to my agent and he didn't read it for six months. Uh, Oh my goodness. Literally, it was almost six months the day before I got a response. And the reason I'm telling you this, apart from the fact it's terrible uh, and you can sympathize, is that I was going nuts. And the, the only way I could stop myself going nuts, it was to throw myself into another project. And the project that suggested itself strongly to me was write another vinyl detective novel because it was going to be a series anyway. So I wrote the second novel and then I was on such a roll that I wrote the third novel. Now, this is the bit that writers shouldn't do is that I'd written three novels with no publishing deal, which is crazy. On the other hand, it really got me into the books and brought the books to life for me. And eventually when we did get a publishing deal, some years later, uh, I had three books ready to go. So what happened was my agent eventually read the book, had some 
mostly negative comments, some of which were, were right. The book was way too long. So I went back and I ruthlessly cut about 30,000 words out of it, which is a lot. Just cut them out, throw them away, bye-bye. And it was, the book was much better for that. Another, I suppose it's another lesson that you have to learn, a useful piece of advice is don't hesitate to cut, uh, to go back and be ruthless with your own book. And also when you do your first novel, even if it's not your very first novel, but the first in a series, you're quite likely to overwrite, throw in the kitchen sink, as we say, you know, that, that's what happened with my first book. So it was quite easy to take out a lot of stuff and just make it leaner and meaner. The agent then tried to sell the books. They didn't immediately sell and he just kind of lost interest. So I had these books sitting on the shelf for a couple of years, but then thank you, God, a friend of mine called Guy Adams, who's also a novelist, uh, was just, he was just getting in touch because we were friends and just, you know, to shoot the breeze. God bless him. He had read this, the first book just as an electronic file I'd sent to him. And so he knew about The Final Detective. And he said, oh, by the way, uh, I'm working, uh, doing some books for a publisher called Titan. And there's an editor there in their crime section called Miranda Dewis, who is really great. Why don't you try her? Send her the books. And so I sent, I emailed Miranda said, I know Guy, he suggested sending in the books. Can I send in, send in the book? Because I didn't tell her I had more than one. And she said, okay, I'm just about to start jury duty. So send me the book. I won't be able to get to it for a long time. So I sent it to her and she, she emailed me back very quickly and said, oh, I actually got to it way quicker <laughs> than, I, than I thought. And I, she said the two most wonderful sentences that you've, you've ever heard if you're a novelist. She said, uh, we want to publish the book. We don't want any changes. <laughs> Oh, I, I know. I, I had one of those calls once. It really is fantastic. It's what you dream about. And so I then said, well, actually, you know what? There's a couple more of these books, if you can bear to read them. And I sent them in and she liked all of them. So it, this started off as a really kind of not happy story where my agent at the time couldn't sell the books and they just, they were going nowhere. But then this is where luck comes in. Luck and connections. So I was a writer who knew another published writer who was a hustling writer, who was making connections, who knew editors and knew me. And then he suggested that I approach Miranda. God bless her too, because she was fabulous. Great editor. I, I speak of her in the past tense only because she's now got a, a prestigious job at another publisher. So I've now got another lovely editor at Titan. But here, the point I'm making is that you need to be part of a community of writers, and you have to be a mutual support network. Ideally, you need to be involved with people who aren't all in the same. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, if you're all unpublished writers in exactly the same holding pen, that isn't great. If you if you know some published writers, that begins to help because they're plugged into the the network of agents and editors. And as you will notice in the story, the agent did not sell the book, but normally an agent would sell the book, and you'd be well advised to send your work to an agent uh, rather than a publisher in the first place. The agent became incredibly useful. The moment I had a deal, the sniff of a deal, he became incredibly useful. Yes, well, that, that's good advice. And I think it's very important that we widen our net and you know go to conferences, meet other authors, sort of interact with people. I know I've started to do that more and more. And actually, that's what art and fiction is accomplishing because I'm learning and meeting so many amazing writers that I had never heard of before, like you. I certainly had never seen The Vinyl Detective before until I was starting to look for novels that were inspired by music. And when I stumbled across yours, I went, oh my gosh, they're perfect. <laughs> so they went right on. So thank you so much. I was very much looking forward to chatting with you because, as I said, I'm, I'm one of your fangirls now. 
Well, that's what we like to hear, Carol. I'm also very inspired because I was toying with the idea of doing a series. I haven't yet. And that advice about just start with what you really, really know and love is excellent advice. So I'm starting to think about doing that. It'll be fun to write about and it's low-hanging fruit, which we all like to have. And as you said yourself, it will communicate itself to the reader. And I'd like to give one last really simple piece of advice to new writers, because it was a great piece of advice that I got when I was starting up, is that in those days, you used to send, let's send a physical letter through the post. These days, it would be an email. But the piece of advice was keep it short, like really short. For instance, here's my book. I hope you like it. Is almost good enough. I mean, that's pretty much enough. The only exception is if you've written a book, say, about the world of professional magic and you're a magician yourself, that's worth mentioning. Something like that, some specialist knowledge that, that might be helpful in tipping the balance. But apart from that, really, because... It's very easy to think that you've got to write a three-page letter and that will only make things worse for you. So really, for your introductory email, keep it as brief as possible. Also, you know, if you can be slightly light touch, humorous, not too needy or uh, bullying, these are all the good things to avoid. And to also indicate that you know the person that you're going to be contacting has too many other emails and manuscripts to read. If you let them know that you know that, you have begun to humanize yourself and also to make them look kindly upon you. It's excellent advice. Yes. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Andrew, and have a wonderful day. What a pleasure. Thank you so much, Carol. My guest has been Andrew Cartwell, the best-selling author of the fabulous Vinyl Detective series. You'll find all five Vinyl Detective novels listed in the music category on Art and Fiction at www.artandfiction.com. Be sure to check the show notes for the link to AuthorBuzz at www.authorbuzz.com to find affordable and comprehensive book marketing services. Mention Art and Fiction and you'll receive a discount. Please follow Art and Fiction on Twitter and Facebook. And don't forget to give the Art and Fiction podcast a positive review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.